Welcome to season two of the Business of Home podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Scully, and I can't wait to share all that we have planned. We'll continue our conversation with industry leaders like Farouk Kathwari of Ethan Allen, emerging entrepreneurs like Anna Bond of Rifle Paper Company, and design innovators and icons like Cloda, discussing the changes and challenges facing the home industry and interior design community. And if you're just joining us, welcome. And we invite you to catch up on season one, which includes interviews with industry titans like Holly Hunt, John Edelman, Ralph Pucci, and more. This podcast has been sponsored by Fuigo. Discover the workspaces and business tools powering exceptional excellence in interior design. Fuigo's 18,000-square-foot Park Avenue studio includes beautiful workspaces and material and product samples from thousands of top A&D vendors in the world's largest lending material library. Now available to interior designers everywhere, Fuigo's modern project management software was tailored to solve the business needs of groundbreaking designers at Fuigo Studio. Visit fuigostudio.com to book a tour. That's F-U-I-G-O studio.com. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is Farouk Kathwari, the chairman and CEO of Ethan Allen. Farouk, thank you for having us in your beautiful store. Uh, it's good to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to get to speak with you. I wanted to start with you first coming to the United States. How long ago was that? Well, it was a long time back. <laughs> I was 20 years old. Okay. I ended up in New York okay from a very difficult part of the world it's war torn Kashmir yes uh, so I was involved like and my family were involved with the conflict my my both sides of my family were involved with arts um, crafts yes and then also politics mm. but at age 20 I ended up after getting an admission to NYU a school a business school Right. Okay. So, now how did you how did you apply to NYU Business School? Well, again, it's a long, long story. That okay. uh, my father had uh, had been separated from us. In Kashmir, was divided. Mm -hmm. So, half of my family got separated. My father was did not come home for seventeen years. Mm. My mother didn't see two of her children for ten years. But my father ended up in New York. Okay. And the World's Fair. At the World's he got, Fair. He got the job in the World's Fair. When ah, he was here, okay. he decided on his own that he would apply for me or at least send me applications. So he sent me applications to Columbia University, to NYU, to City College. And I had no idea because in Kashmir, I was mostly spending time in sports. I was the captain of the cricket team. Ah, okay. And to play cricket almost five days a week... I studied English literature and political science. Right. While families wanted you to be a doctor or an engineer. Okay. <laughs> but somehow I got admitted. And it was a long story. It was not easy for me to come. To come over from Kashmir. To come to Kashmir. My papers were not right. Right. But amazing how many people helped me. Along the way. Along the way. So I came here and day two, after landing in Queens and having an apartment in Queens, came to NYU not far from where we are here. Yes, not far at all. Yeah. And so you began as a, as a student. At, I at became NYU. a student, for an MBA student. Right. And, uh, and then I needed a job. 
Yes. And my father had given me enough money to live for six months. So I had six months <laughs> to, to get yourself to settled. get myself settled. Okay. So I was looking for a job, and I saw an ad in the newspaper. It said bookkeeper needed. And I asked my class fellows. I said, "What's a bookkeeper?" <laughs> Because I had never seen any accounting, any books. I had not even seen a calculator. <laughs> right. So they said, "Don't apply." No, this is not the job for you. That's right. So I, but I did. It was on Broadway and Canal Street. It was a small company printing envelopes, uh -huh. and there were two partners, Jesse Isaacson and Richard King. I've forgotten millions of names, but Jesse <laughs> but Isaacson, you remember them. Richard King, and Abe who printed, okay. and Sally was those days they called them Gal Friday, like she did everything else. Yes, yes. Fortunately for me, I came around lunchtime, so they opened up a book. And a calculator, which I had not seen, so actually it was a hand-operated calculator. He said, "Could you foot the books?" So I looked mm -hmm. at him and very confidently said, "What's it in English?" Yes. He said, "What do you mean? Where have you learned?" I said, "In England, the only thing in England I had done was change a plane." But you told him that you had learned in England. That's right. <laughs> But fortunately, okay. it was lunchtime, and he said, "I've got to go out. Can you come back or wait?" I said, "I'll wait." So. While I was looking at the books, this lady came over. I was named Sally, and she said, "I've been watching you. Know anything about bookkeeping?" Mm. I said, "Nothing, but I need the job. Can you teach me?" So in a 45 minutes, she gave me a tutorial. So she, Sally gave you lessons in lessons in 45 minutes. What's a what's a account receivable book, a disbursement book, how to operate a ca calculator? Calculator. Told yeah. me what a footing means, which basically means adding adding the page. Sure, adding the page up. So when this Richard King came back, looked at me and said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Well, I've looked at your books. They need some work, but it's okay. <laughs> you know, you have to be confident." Yes. So I got the yes. job. I do not know how I learned, but uh, after three or four months, I was uh, doing well. Okay. I had, Fantastic. Good I had for doubled you. my salary, really? but I, so but I was but raised. I was a full time student at night. Right. Okay. And so, but I also learned. Um, Uh, an early lesson, which was that these two partners was always arguing, always. So I was listening to them. They were much older than me. Mm -hmm. And one day, I said to them, I said, Mr. Isaacson, Mr. King, you have differences. Why don't you tell me? Maybe I'll help you. So they looked at this twenty-something <laughs> and said, <laughs> "You're going to help us." I said, "Tell me." I always was a captain of a sports team, cricket team. We always had arguments, issues. Right. They looked at each other, and finally, they said, "On that day, fortunately, they were arguing of how much money they can take out of petty cash." I said, well, "I'm the bookkeeper. I know. <laughs> you each should take a hundred dollars, and I should get fifteen." They looked at me, laughed. They said, "Why you should get fifteen?" I said, "Because I came with the solution." <laughs> well, they agreed to give me five dollars more, which was very good. Wow! Okay. But what I learned was that I can. Also apply the common sense of finding solutions, right. and that started my, my, uh, my. You know, thus began your illustrious career. It did, but yes. also my grandfather in Kashmir made a decision in which he decided on his own to send me twelve wicker baskets of arts and crafts, mm. and said, "Sell them okay. and send us the money, but it'll help you in your school." Oh, so this was his way of helping from that's from right. Kashmir. But now, first, I had to decide where to keep the baskets. Right. Second, okay. is where do I sell them? And again, our class at, uh, at business school had received a lecture from Marvin Traub, right. who used to be a CEO of Bloomingdale's, sure. well known. Sure. So I said, "I'll call him." So I called his office maybe 
seven days, eight days. First they said it's not available. But finally, eight, nine days later, they said, okay, come on in. I went in. He got in a, one of his merchants, looked at these great art, paper mache, wood carving things that I had. They said, we like it. It's great. Well, Bloomingdale's became my customer, and I was in the business of arts and crafts. Look at that. And then I said, hey, Bloomingdale's, then why not Lauren Taylor's? Why not others? Right. So I started now selling it to others part-time. I was going to school full-time. Sure. I was still working in the accounting <laughs> And you're still firm. a bookkeeper. I was still a bookkeeper. Right. Now, about um, nine or ten months later, Richard King, who had come to like me, he said, you know, NYU Business School is near Wall Street. That's where it used to be. Mm. He said, why don't you go get a job on Wall Street? I said, I'm studying marketing. That's what I was studying. Right. He said, doesn't matter, go there and tell the, get a job close to your school. And I asked, what should I tell him? They said, tell him you are a financial analyst. <laughs> so anyway, I walked the first building on Wall Street, walked up the floors, and, the, and I got a job with Bear Stearns as a junior financial analyst. Well, I was still at school, still selling my... Still selling you. And a, your year, a year later, I was approached by a new company formed by the Rothschilds. Uh, the portfolio manager needed somebody to help him and they asked me as a sort of a junior analyst to help the uh, the portfolio manager while I'm still going to uh, going to school and selling my arts These and crafts. These were the days. These, These were the days. But you see, people help you. Yes. And it was there yes. that one of my associates who knew I was selling arts and crafts said, you know, I know the chairman and founder of Ethan Allen. Ah, here we go. Okay. Would you like to meet with him? Of course, Ethan, I did not know that, but Ethan Allen's headquarters were on Lexington Avenue here mm. in Manhattan. Oh, okay. So Lexington, back in the day, they were here right, in New York City. Lexington right. and 33rd Street. So I went to see, and Nat and Sal was an, the founder, the chairman, very well known. So I went to see him, and he brought in one of his, again, uh, merchants. And said, this young man is from Kashmir. Do we get anything from there? Right. They said, yes, we get this cruel fabric. Hand embroidered, ah, okay. never comes on time, always a problem. It's the worst vendor that we have. So he said, you can help. I said, absolutely. Okay. I had no idea. About, <laughs> but I got in the fabric business with Ethan Allen. And after that, I said, if Ethan Allen, right. I, I mean, it was, it was a process. Not, sure, not, sure, sure. Not easy okay. to not to make I am it. I'm trying to keep up with this fast-moving career of yours. So you were no longer doing the bookkeeping. Now you were... No, after the bookkeeping, I was, I, was, I was working. I know, I was, so you'd gone to Bear Stearns. And after that, and I went to the Rothschild. Roth I was still there, the Rothschilds. Okay. You were still working with the Rothschilds. And this was all part-time. Got it. The fabric business. And you were going to school. I was going to school. Okay, getting your MBA. That's right. Right, okay. And it was there that um, I started this process, and by... Uh, but another, I was still at school, and um, a year later, uh, when I was almost completing my MBA, I was made the chief financial officer of the Rothschild company. Think of this. My knowledge of that bookkeeping led me to... Unbelievable. A man who didn't know how to work a calculator five minutes ago, and now he's suddenly... Five years later. Unbelievable. Okay. And it was there that Nat himself again called me a year back and said... You know, my merchants tell me we're having a trouble getting rugs from Romania and India. Mm. Can you help? I said, absolutely. Oh, I'm your man. I had no idea where <laughs> Romania was. I had no idea where the rugs from India you, come in. You are, must be an incredible actor. How do you even keep a straight face while you're telling people these things? Yeah, you have to, yeah, you have right? to keep a straight face. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So okay, anyway. So you said yes. I'm, I'll, and I'll then, take that on. But the difference is this. You have to say yes, but then you have to do it. Right. 
So you figured it out. You had to figure it out. Right. And I did. I took a week off from my work, went to India. Romania, no. But by that right. time, I thought Romania would not be the, the, the place. And I was right. able to find good sources mm -hmm. and became a source of rugs to, to Ethan Allen, mm -hmm. to Bloomingdale's, to right. Lauren Taylor's, and to a few others. And as another, a year or so go, goes by, I came to know Nat and Sal, mm -hmm. and uh, he liked me, I think, and he said... This is the founder of Ethan Allen. The founder Allen. of Ethan Allen, yes. and Ethan Allen at that time, it was 1973, mm. was moving from Dan from Manhattan to Danbury. To Danbury, Connecticut, where Connecticut. the headquarters is today. That's right, and yes. he then, he said to me, he said, why don't you join Ethan Allen? You're a merchant, you're a marketing person, you're still working in finance. I thought about it, right. and I said, no, how about a partnership? Because at that time, Ethan Allen was a manufacturer of furniture, right. well-known. had about um, close to 30 manufacturing plants in America, mm -hmm. sold its products to its Ethan Allen dealers, yes. who purchased furniture from Ethan, Ethan Allen, but also purchased lamps and accessories and pictures from others. So I said, I'll give up my job, we'll set up a joint venture, and my company will develop all these other products that these dealers need, like lamps, lighting. Textiles. So everything besides the furniture itself, you would supply? And even furniture, some furniture okay. from Italy and others. Got it. Okay. And after some discussions, he agreed. So I gave up my job. We set up a joint venture called KEA International. Okay. Kathwari Ethan Allen. Got it. And I took his office because right. he, they had same year moved to Danbury. He gave me his office, a big, huge penthouse kind of a stuff in, on, on Lexington. Fantastic. And we started the process. And that's the KEA International. My first uh, w uh, venture was to set up an office in Italy because at that time Italy was the main source of products of the home, not China or India or anywhere else. Right. So okay. we set so up an office in Italy. It was Florence and Italy, mm -hmm. and I used to go there f four or five times a year, and then come, came more products and then. And from Portugal and India and a few years later to China and that business developed for the flower for the for about seven eight years okay and at that time Ethan Allen which was a public company was purchased by a company a conglomerate that wanted to get in the furniture business uh, right. called Interco out okay. of St. Louis Interco right so they decided to get into the furniture business and the first company they purchased was Ethan Allen and Nat and Sal and Ted Baumritter, which they owned a fair share. This was for them also a way of uh, cashing out. Cashing out, sure. And that was the way this was done. While mm -hmm. these conglomerates used to buy these companies, and they would then allow the people to keep on running them. Right. And it. And we should say that this was a time where conglomerates were very popular, and everyone thought. You had to be a great big company with lots of different divisions, right? That That's was, right. It that was, was a model. It was a, which was called the so-called ITT model. Where exactly. Yes. Where they purchased all kinds of companies. Right. So it was at that time they he then said to me that I would I believe that it makes sense for you to uh, come to Ethan Allen and let us buy your interest. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of discussions. In fact, I went to his office. We talked, and I thought that I didn't want to go because I was operating my business out of uh, Westchester. Okay. From I, My first building was a bowling alley that I purchased <laughs> where we did all kinds of assembly of products. Okay. I still own that building. Huh. And then I purchased a building in Passaic, New Jersey, which we still own. Okay. 
And uh, I w- didn't want to go, you know, I had little children, right. they were close to home. Okay. And so I thought that the best way for him to, for him to tell me not to come was to say something that he would say not agree to. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, the only reason I would come here would be to take your job. So he looked at me, he said, you want my job? I said, I don't want your job, but if I have to come here, that's what I have to do. Right. Well, anyway, he agreed. I thought he would not agree, <laughs> and then uh, I became president of Ethan Allen. So you took uh, over. Uh, you know, I was in my thirties, and you know, it was like sort of. A, and I had to. And all of a sudden, I saw that about forty vice presidents, very knowledgeable in every different field, mm. and here he asked me to become president of the company. So there were forty vice presidents at the at the time. So how big was Ethan Allen at the time? Well, at that time, in terms of sales, you know, it did one hundred fifty million dollars, mm-hmm. but that was a lot of money at that right, time. In those days, but yes. it was a structured company with thirty manufacturing plant, hundred management people in the field selling it mm-hmm. to the dealers. Uh, so it was, you know, a very traditional company. And and was it at the time? Was it very much the colonial furniture image that we have in our in our minds? Oh, absolutely. Ethan Allen, okay. Ethan Allen was an early American colonial mm-hmm. company, which, of course, in the forties, fifties, even sixties, was the predominant style. Right. That that was was, that's what American wanted. Right. So Ethan Allen was right for its time. Mm-hmm. But by seventies, tastes were changing. Mm-hmm. If you take a look at most middle America, purchase their clothing from Sears and Pennies and others. Then comes Gap, comes Unlimited, right. comes changes, fashion started to change. Mm-hmm. Automobiles used to be made by General Motors, Ford, Chrysler. They were all big. Right. And then come the Japanese and they changed the style of automobiles. Mm-hmm. So styles were now changing. So, but... And, you know, throughout history, there is a pattern of change in style. Yes. It first starts with what you wear. Then it goes to your transportation. Then it goes to home. Hmm. This is something that's gone through thousands of years. Nothing new. Right. So clothing was changing. Yes. Transportation was changing. And it was then coming into the homes. So Ethan Allen was very much a traditional, you know, colonial company and doing well. Right. At the time you took over, doing well, and it was what people thought American furniture uh, Reasonably was. well. It was not really okay, growing, reasonably but reasonably well. well. <laughs> okay. But uh, the styles were starting to change. Right. And then uh, this Interco that had purchased Ethan Allen, uh, and they purchased two other major companies, Broyhill and Lane, and became mm. the largest furniture company in the United States in terms of the manufacturing sourcing right. side. Between those three brands, right, okay. And this was now in the mid-80s, and in the late 80s, they came under a hostile takeover. Interco. Interco did. Mm -hmm. And those days, to fight a hostile, one of the ways was to get a lot of debt, Mm. give it as a dividend, and and the radar would maybe go away. And that's what they did. And I saw the opportunity, I said, these folks are going to be in trouble. And maybe I should do something of buying Ethan Allen. Now, because of my connections in the past on Wall Street, right. they helped. Yes. So I put together. Um, so I went to them, and I said, "I'll we like to." Uh, and I took Nat and Sal with me, who had re- retired but was still 
um, sort of um, uh, with the company. Okay. Okay. So, the, so the original founder was still loosely involved. Yeah, he was. He had okay. his office there. He was. He was not involved. He was not. He didn't have any. But he was chairman emeritus. Got it. Okay. But he was still there. So right. I said, let's you, you and I go. And you went to see investors. No, no, not investors. We went to Saint Louis where Interco was headquartered. Mm. Okay. And we told them we like to buy the company. They said, right. no, not for sale. Now, Naren Sal was a character. He said, what do you mean not for sale? We want to buy it. You have to sell it. Well, they said, look, here, we own it. You better go back. So we came back. Then they thought about it. And a week or so later, they said to me that we decided to sell Ethan Allen and set up a ridiculous price of $600 million and said, we cannot sell it to you without having an auction with your management. And your job is to sell the company, you can buy the company, and we will sell it in four weeks, and the price is $600 million. It was sort of ridiculous. Yes, it sounds ridiculous. It was ridiculous in the price, and the second, how am I going to get that? Right. The banks were not ready to even think of loaning, even if the money was less. So I had met Jack Welch of GE, was a major, major institution, the GE sure. Capital. Sure. I called him up. So that guy had called Marvin Traub and got started. Right. I called him up. See, called him up. And he said, you know, it's interesting. You talk to Gary Wendt, who was the CEO of GE Capital. Mm -hmm. At that time, GE Capital was bigger than banks. It was huge. It was huge. Yeah. So I met um, Gary Wendt. I met his other associates. And amazing that in three weeks' time, they approved $550 million in cash. Those are crazy times. Will yes. not happen. Those were crazy times. That we would buy the company at 90% debt. Unbelievable. So anyway, we made the bid. It went through a bidding process, lots of fights. Yeah. And Interco, they should have accepted our money. They didn't. Uh, they thought they would even get more. And well, six or seven months later, while they were still negotiating, markets turned. And we were then able to buy the company at $350 million ah. while we were going to offer them $500 million right. six months before. We, could have, we would have chance, most likely would have never made it, even at $350 <laughs> million. It was a, but anyway, we, yes. we were you, able to, um, bought it. we bought the company. Okay. And then the, ch the, um, the challenge started, which is now we had to make sure that we were enough uh, cash coming in to pay the interest and grow the business. And you had very high interest rates, right? We had interest rates up to 18%. 18%. Right. Okay. I brought in after that time gave, it was, I had a great group of people. I had, as my partners was at that time, Chemical Bank, which is JP Morgan. Sure. Um, Sandy Weil was running uh, Smith Barney. He, he became a partner. So I'd, oh, yeah, I so knew all these pretty people. Good, and pretty G, good partners. So they all became good partners. Okay. But 18% interest. They were yeah. good partners as long as they, you know, they were cash up, flow to, to up generate. to 18%. Yeah. But we had to now change the company. If we did not make changes, so this is now 1992. Okay. We, uh, we so this is the first major changes that you make to the company. The, uh, we made the change. But 1989 is when we purchased the company. Mm -hmm. So between 1989 and 1992, we changed 50% of the product line. We even changed the looks of our stores from a colonial to what we have today, a little bit more modern. Mm -hmm. And we had to convince at that time, all 95% of the stores were operated by individual families. Right. So we okay. had to convince all of them to change the storefronts, yes. take on the new products, and they all did. We had a great relationship with them. I mean, it did not happen right away. I had right worked away. with them for yeah. many years. Yeah. And, and 
for the next 10 years or so, we were able to bring in products, new products. Uh, we had to, um, we spent a lot of money on advertising and we generated $2 billion of free cash. Unbelievable. And so we paid our debt back. Okay. We so invested you pull, So you pulled that off. So you paid down the 18% notes and everything. Right. Plus, on top of we bought, for, uh, over the years, we bought 40% of our company back. Right. We invested a billion dollars in capital expenditures. And then around that time, in the, in the, in the late 90s, uh, many of these families who had been with the company for 30, 40 years started retiring. Mm. And, and, and many of the, the second generation, third generation were doing other things. They didn't want the business. They didn't want to. Right. In some cases, they did. Okay. Uh, and it took a, fortunately, it all didn't happen one or, uh, right away. Right. So, but now in the last um, 25 years or so, we now have, we operate 70% of the 200 stores or design centers that we right. have in North America. Are now company-owned. They're company-owned. Right. And the challenge was, who's going to run them? So we decided that the best person to run something is somebody who's got a passion. But I wouldn't be doing whatever I did if you didn't have a passion. Mm. And in our business was the business of design. So interior designers had the passion. So we said, we are going to t take interior designers and make them entrepreneurs. Interesting. Okay. So we decided that how, and so today we have 200 management in our retail division. You're sitting in, you know, you have one of them. Sure. 90% of them came from the ranks running the business. Right. Interior designers um, be became uh, project managers, dis uh, design center managers, district managers, vice presidents. So that was one element of the business that we have had, we've had to work. And today, uh, as I said, um, we have a strong team of people, and of course, just so happens, ninety percent of them are women because of the because of the of the interior design. So, background. were you were you specifically trying to hire interior designers to come and come and work for the company, and then you knew that you could train them to become managers and and, and project managers and all of that? Well, we had already started right from the eighties great focus on interior design. So right. we already had interior design. We had changed the business from salespeople to interior design. And so that was part of the big change that you made to the business. That's right. Going from salespeople to, to, to design professionals. That's right. That was already been done. Right. The company always had good, uh, knowledgeable people. Okay. Some of them interior designers, not but not everybody. Right. To, but our objective was that everybody who deals with a client has to have interior design background. So we had to bring in people. Today we have 1,500 interior designers, 1,200, uh, about 1,200 or so in North America, right. 300 internationally, mm -hmm. and 95% of them have strong interior design background. So I would say that we are the leading and maybe the largest interior design <laughs> interior company. Design firm? Well, see, that's interesting because interior designers will push back on that yes. and say that they're not really interior designers, right? So there are people that work in stores that help people pick out fabrics or lights. So, so what's your response to that? Well, it's uh, uh, the response is that these are interior designers, and where they have the are they trained? Are they are they trained interior designers? Did many of them work in interior design? Oh, absolutely! In fact, they have trained. Most of them have gone to school in interior design. Mm -hmm. 
uh, or arts. Okay. Um, and they have been, or we, and many of them have, uh, were, were professional interior designers who come to join us, right. members of ASID. Okay. Uh, they are, um, so I would say 90% of our people in the in, uh, who are working in our design centers ha have a professional uh, educational background in design. Okay. Maybe 10% may, may right. not have, but 90% okay. do. And so as I said, uh, now the difference between them and the folks who work outside is that our interior designers basically have to work with what we have. Right. They cannot go out with the client and buy other products. Right. That's why we have to have a strong, a comprehensive product programs that are relevant, that people can utilize, and uh, and there are interior designers work with clients. Now they also help the clients if they want to do. For instance, we don't sell kitchen cabinets. We don't sell uh, tiles. They help them, but they, but we don't sell them. Right. So will they actually help them specify kitchen cabinets and, and bathroom tiles, or, or will they point them in the right direction of a, of a showroom that can help them? They would point them in the right direction right. Okay. because there's an issue okay. for liability if mm -hmm. you, sure, sure, we are sure. not in that business. Right. So I think that our business model today is that we are, we are one of the few vertically integrated companies left. When I started, we had 30 manufacturing plants, right. but at that time, there was no products coming in from China or Vietnam. It was all United States. Sure. The, the next challenge we had to face with was the challenge of sourcing. But before I do that, let me go back to yes. the interior design. When we took over these locations, stores, we call them design centers right. from our independents, the issue was that most of them had been set up in the 1960s, mm. some even in the 1950s. And the last 10 years, a lot of those locations are the relevant locations. Right. So our challenge was to first take them and then to relocate them. 60% of these 150 that we took over, we have relocated them. Okay. Like, for instance, this one over here, we used to have one on 33rd Street right. in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. At one time, we had one on 18th Street and 5th Avenue. At that time, it was not a good location. Today, that's a fantastic location, <laughs> right. but it was closed. Yeah. So uh, we have been relocating. Mm -hmm. Right now, there are about five or six under construction on relocation. We're right now in the process of relocating in Albany, New York, okay. where the fa independent family retired after 60 years. We took it over last year. We are now in the process of relocating one in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We're re relocating one in, uh, in Denver. We're relocating one in Southern California. This is constant process. So keep in mind, we operate 150 and 60% plus, we have relocated them in the last 10, 12 years. Right. So that that's part of the relevancy process. That's part of staying current, right, with, with the times and, and where people are shopping and where they're, they're looking for. Even this location where we're speaking now, this, this nomad area has become a very popular destination for, for furniture, for restaurants. Yes, this is, this is and this is what is taking place where, you know, 25, 30 years back, it would be a suburban location, a freestanding and a larger store. Right. Now, today, with technology, Mm -hmm. and more interior, knowledgeable interior designers we don't need as large a space. If you don't have knowledgeable interior designers and you have salespeople, 
they can only sell if they show it on the floor. Ah, okay. That's so. That's an interesting connection. So a talented designer can can explain to a client without the client actually having to see it in, in person. Absolutely. Now, twenty years back, that was not the case. Mm. And those folks who are selling at the mass level, right, are selling it. If they don't show it, they don't sell it. Right. In our case, we have opened up different sizes. For instance, we have opened up in Watermill in the Hamptons, mm-hmm. a three thousand square foot. It's there are two interior designers that do a great job. We've opened right. one in, uh, in in the suburbs of Orlando, a 1,500 square foot, but we're interior designers, today with technology, and also the fact that, you know, right now a lot of our products are available in 3D. Mm. They're available in, in augmented reality. So space is less. This one right. is half the space we would have normally had 10 years back. Right. But today we are able to operate because of technology. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but we'll be right back. Discover the workspaces and business tools powering exceptional excellence in interior design. Fuego's 18,000-square-foot Park Avenue studio includes beautiful workspaces and material and product samples from thousands of top A&D vendors in the world's largest lending material library. Now available to interior designers everywhere, Fuego's modern project management software was tailored to solve the business needs of groundbreaking designers at Fuego Studio. Visit FuegoStudio.com to book a tour. That's F-U-I-G-O Studio.com. And now, on with the show. I want to talk about the, the role that technology is playing in the, in the furniture industry in general, but I know that it's something that, that you have put in the forefront of, of the efforts that, that you're making as a, as a leader of Ethan Allen? You see, technology, today you have to combine technology and personal service. For instance, in the last one year, about almost 600 of our interior designers are now chatting online with clients. Right. To be, with the involvement, with the, with, the, with, with the 3D, with augmented reality, uh, we have today to make sure that we are relevant because relevancy is tremendously important yes relevancy affects every element of our business being a vertically integrated company the relevancy from manufacturing we manufacture 70 percent of all the product of the furniture that you see here in our own workshops in north america right 25 30 years back we had 30 plants in the in the in the, in the united states and today, out of instead of 30 plants, we have nine plants. Seven of them in the United States, two major ones. In the last 10 years, we've opened one in Mexico and one in Honduras. Mm. And we are shipping f- from Mexico and Honduras and the United States 70, 80% of the products we sell in China. So vertical integration for us right. starts in, at every level. So manufacturing, We've had to bring in technology. You know, 20 years back, uh, sort of a a plant that was not right up to its uh, highest level could work. Today you can't. You're competing with manufacturing in China, in Vietnam, in every country of the world. So we, our seven plants uh, in the United States and two in, in Mexico, Honduras, have a tremendous amount of technology because we have to compete with the world. Yes. Same thing in technology has to has impacted every element of our business. For instance, the sofa that you are sitting on. Right. 
15 years back this sofa was made with what was what is called in this industry sticks mm-hmm. by parts wooden parts right. some people still make it that way mm-hmm. we had a million square feet of space dedicated to making parts today all of that has been replaced with 50000 square feet with cnc computer operated machines that make all the parts for all this one sofa in less than 5 minutes unbelievable the fabric that you see over there has you know we every, all our fabrics are matched mm-hmm. which a lot of folks don't do it but we used to cut it all by hand today with laser cutting machines right we are programming that this fabric will have be applied to every sofa chair that we have and it has to be programmed and this fabric will be cut by our laser cutting machines in less than 5 or 7 minutes and be absolutely accurate otherwise how do you compete in the world so yes. technology and personal service from manufacturing to retail is important then we also did something that was unheard of in the late 80s at the late 80s our retailers independent retailers did what most like the car car companies do even of the highest brands they have three ads in the newspaper say come and get it from me and ethan allen dealers did the same thing too then i felt no we have an opportunity of creating a national brand but our most of our factories were on the east coast and by the time we delivered to texas and to the west coast the prices could be 10 15 20% higher so we decided that we will deliver our products at one cost nationally in the 80s late 80s and that was unheard of at the unheard time unheard of even today it's not it's easier to you know to, to ship something a piece of glass but furniture and deliver it with a with a white glove service to the right. consumer's home nationally at one price we did that and that has become a great advantage because white glove service personal service is critical to our business and that's what we do and so part of the part of the the huge <coughs> in investment that you've made was to was to keep your manufacturing here in the United States or or in in North America as you point out uh because that was you felt critically important to the success of the of the whole operation it did because of the fact that our business is that of providing interior design service and not providing not selling it as a commodity right every Every item that you see is individually made. Mm-hmm. I was recently asked to speak at a big conference in Columbus, mm-hmm. um, Ohio, where we toured a Honda plant, four million square feet, and they were producing a car in two colors every sixty seconds. So, so I was also asked to talk about our uh, our. Um, what we are doing and um, and the difference and i said to them all there were about 100 ceos i said if you go to our plant in north carolina you'll see 1000 items going through our plant everyone being different because we are not making a th- uh, you know 10 of these we're making one at a time one at a time but it got to be also efficient so technology personal service and customization is tremendously important well and 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 you're one of the things that you've always been passionate about and 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 with all of the different careers that we talked about earlier really marketing international marketing was one of the things that you that you studied and and marketing was always a passion for you yes it was and still is and still is and, and you know marketing is always i define marketing 
being something that we do at all levels. Right. Internal marketing is as critical as external marketing. Right. So I, if you're, if our my team members are not motivated, we have five thousand three hundred directly working at Ethan Allen. If they are not motivated, it's hard to motivate customers. So internal marketing, which means how do we treat people mm. internally? How do we treat our customers? All of that is critical. So I believe that constant focus on internal marketing and external marketing is critical. Okay, and. And on that same subject, and you and I were just talking earlier about the reports that your managers give give to you. So, so you ask your your managers to sort of inform you every week on five key issues. Correct. That's right. right. And this we've done for many years. And we, I like everything five. Five. Because you know, you've got five fingers in your hand. And my feeling is, if you don't get in your hand, the chance that you're not going to is going to slip away. Okay. So five is a good number. Okay. So you've got your five points. So so let's talk about them. The five po- five important areas that we are discussing that we discuss every week. It first is talent and leadership. Okay. I believe without leadership and talent, nothing much is going to happen. Right. So is this the recruiting efforts that are going on in each market? Is this how people are developing their staff? What are you looking to hear? Uh, in the case of tal- talent, it is from recruiting mm-hmm. to training to motivating to making sure that uh, talent is not only what your new talent. You've got to make sure you're more, it's more important to make sure your talent that you have is motivated. Right. So talent means... Uh, uh, acquiring, training, motivating, and keeping them. Okay. Second is Second. marketing. Marketing. Here we go. And the marketing is important. And in the, in the marketing is many different ways. We have in. Uh, I define marketing as internal marketing mm-hmm. and external marketing. So our team members have to every week say what they have done on internal marketing. Sometimes it's a sentence. Sometimes it's more. Because keep in mind, there's 50 people who report every week. Don't report, don't report to those folks. Don't technically report to me, right. but they send a copy of that report to me as they send it to the person they report to. Okay. So they talk of marketing in mm-hmm. terms of what steps have they taken? How are we uh, uh, working at a national level of marketing, at, at the grassroots level? Mm-hmm. Third is uh, service. Services at every level. Somebody, our manufacturing has to talk about service. We run a sawmill in Vermont. We still, we go out in the forests and get lumber. Now, that service that a sawmill has to provide is very different than a service that is provided, say, at a retail. But everyone talks about service that they have to do because everybody in our company, I believe everybody that we deal with is a customer. Internal or external is a customer. So, in that case, we talk about service. We talk service means manufacturing, infrastructure. Service means uh, uh, white glove service. Then, the, then, then we talk about technology. Technology today is in every element. So we look at technology in manufacturing, we look at technology at retail, we look at technology. So they talk about what they are doing. What they are doing. And, and then the fifth one is social responsibility. Everyone has to talk about what they have done to make sure they're socially responsible in, in their operations. From depends, again, at different levels. We run manufacturing. Uh, we have to make sure that we are socially responsible in, in the way we 
manufacture, that we are socially responsible in the way we treat uh, waste, socially responsible. For instance, to give an example, that 10 years back I went to Mexico. At that time, it was very hard to find people to cut and sew uh, this sofa. Right. So people started going to China and other countries. I said, no, we want to do it ourselves. So right in a state called Guanajuato, which is in the middle of Mexico, a beautiful state, mm -hmm. we had a small plant run by an American, former Air Force officer who had gone there with his family and running this little plant. So I walked around, I, we needed something, but what I liked about it was the people that worked for him were smiling. Many times when I go to plants and people keep their heads down, don't even look up, you know, I don't like it. They were smiling, they were talking. So I said to Jim, I said, okay, we agree to buy it, but I said, you want to, I want you to make sure you treat these people well. They asked him a question, I said, what environmental and safety standards do you follow? They said, we follow the Mexican law. I said, no, you're going to follow the U.S. law. Even though I know people go to Mexico to... Sure, to, to avoid the to U.S. Avoid laws. That. I said, no, that's what you're going to follow. Right. We did. Okay. We have about 1,100 people there. started with 90. They are motivated. We have... All this is cut in Mexico, what you're sitting on. Right. They work hard. Mm -hmm. They do a great job. And today, they're shipping every week a lot of containers to China from Mexico. Same thing in Honduras. We do the same thing in terms of, now, sh short term it does cost you money, but long term, motivated people and less turnover is more is better than having people leave you, people don't pr produce quality. Right. So we have benefited a great deal. So social responsibility at every level is important. Okay. Okay, so let's, Let's talk about some of Ethan Allen's challenges today, right? So we're in, a, we're in a very challenging environment in retail in general. The, the, the furniture industry, particularly challenged in, in many ways. Uh, online technology has dramatically changed the business. And I know that you've, you've partnered with Amazon in, in, in a small way and, you, and, you're, and you're on their platform. Has that been a successful partnership? Have you seen meaningful revenue from that or? Well, I think that uh, just talking in the broader sense about um, the challenges, certainly yes. a lot of challenges. I mean, I've seen in the, in, the, in, the, in the few decades, major, major changes. Sure. In the last 20 years, we have been confronted with a change in what I call globalization. It hit our industry. Mm -hmm. Before that, it had hit textiles and apparel and shoes and others it came to us. About 20 years back, almost 70% of furniture was made in the United States. In 15, 10, 12, 14 years later, 70% had gone offshore. So we were now impacted with globalization, which meant that all of a sudden we had to close a lot of plants in, in the United States. Right. Secondly, the pricing of the products coming from overseas was much less. So deflation hit our industry in the last 10-12 years where the prices today are lower than they were 10-12 years back. Mm -hmm. So when you think of a price for sofa today being lower than what they were 10-12 years back, we have to confront with inflation. Our costs haven't gone down, right. medical costs, employee costs, everything else. So globalization also had an impact on deflation and then it also changed the nature of retailing. It changed manufacturing. Most manufacturers left. Right. 
or they started making products overseas. Mm -hmm. It also had the change in the retailing. Most furniture 20-25 years back was sold by family businesses, stores all over the country. Yes. They started closing. They could no longer compete as happened in hardware, Absolutely. electronics. When sure. Walmart came in, it changed the groceries. When Home Depot and Lowe's came in, it changed the hardware business. And when these large commodity uh, boxes came in the furniture, thousands of furniture stores went out of business. So we had a complete shift. Yes. And here we are still standing. We had to confront the impact of globalization, the deflation, um, and the fact that uh, the whole uh, retailing was changing that you know we have mass retailers all over the country today and so with that uh, that in mind we had to con we had to be confronted with all these uh, these challenges and then comes the internet right the technology yes so all of these things are there so we had to, we have to confront with this and we also said how do we how do we how do we manage all of this we must experiment also mm. so i know i knew first one was actually with disney we had gone to disneyland and i saw little kids how they were watching things so i knew mr bob Iger. i had met him i called him up and he immediately sent his key people up to denbury Right. And decided that we would establish an Ethan Allen Disney magical home. And that was our first venture outside Ethan Allen. We mm -hmm. had never collaborated with anybody. And it's been a good, not a major one, but right. a good experiment. Okay. Because we don't sell it to anybody else. We control it. Right. The second one I said is let's experiment with Amazon coming in. And also I called up Mr. Jeff Bezos, who I met in immediately said You've yes. You've got a great Rolodex. I love that yeah. you could just call all these CEOs. I've been lucky, fortunately. Yes. Yes, okay. yes. I've, I've, you know, in the retail, I've, I've chaired the National Retail Federation for a number of years. Right. So I've come to know a lot of these. Yes. In fact, once gave an award to Mr. Bezos. Okay. So you called so, Mr. Bezos and said, we should do business. And yep. they said, yes. So <laughs> we agreed to set up we we agree we but it had to be done in a manner that we felt com comfortable with right and they were fine with it okay so we established an ethan allen design studio on this site but we would control it we would sell the product right and the experiment has been you know it has been okay and what we have done is what we have done is we have uh, established the studio and uh, what what we are finding is this that when people do Today, you know that a lot of people who are buying anything do also tend to go to Amazon to see. Right. So they do go to the Amazon site and then they can buy if they want to, although we supply the product. Mm -hmm. We don't sell it to Amazon. Or they come to our site or come to Ethan Allen. Right. So it's, it, it's exactly the same as any of your storefronts around the country. It's just on Amazon's website. That's right. Yep. And and have you have you seen a, a, a pickup in your web traffic? Have you seen a, a pickup in volume? I mean, what's your what's your sense of how uh, that's been for you? I think the sense is that it has helped our web traffic. Okay. Because today, people we knew it already that when uh, that many people who came to our site had also gone to Amazon to see if we're there, mm -hmm. and many people who came to our site went afterwards to Amazon to see if we're there. So what they see is that there's no difference right. because our prices are the same, service is the same, mm -hmm. and uh, and if they buy, we still service it through our retail network. Uh, 
and we still involve our interior designers. So even our all our business that we do on online, mm-hmm. we compensate our interior designers for even the business they may not have done themselves because we want them to see if they can help those customers. To reach out to those customers that came online and, and develop a relationship. That's right, yep. Okay. okay. So all our designers, and if they themselves have not interacted, we then put the money in the pool for each design center for the designers. Right. Because I want them to be partners. Right. Not to feel that there's an enemy. Right. So when you look at the competitive landscape, when you look at Wayfair or restoration hardware, restoration hardware opening a 90,000 square foot showroom here in New York, right? Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think Ethan Allen can, can do to sort of compete on that landscape? Well, uh, you know, every, 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 every organization has their own method of, uh, of reaching people and own strategies. Our strategy is really to be a very uh, very strong in a number of uh, areas. First is that we got we have to have a product that's very very relevant. In fact, uh, in the last three years, with all the new product that's come in and come that just come in, right. seventy percent of the products we have changed. To make so seventy percent of the product that's in here now is, three, is, with, is within, within the last three years. That's right. Right. Okay. Now that's a lot of change, mm-hmm. but it also is relevant because today people are interested in what I would call the new modern. It's classic, okay. but with a modern attitude. Okay. That's what people. That's that's what our designs are inspired with. That's what we are developing. So you have to be relevant in your offerings. Uh, second quality we say every detail matters so every detail in the stitching and the quality is critical that's what differentiates us right third is our interior design service we are the leading interior designers and fourth is when you buy it the service that we provide all those things give us a a competitive advantage uh, so that we can compete with all these names that you have mentioned and can you compete? So uh, again, I go back to a Wayfair, for example, just because that stock has done incredibly well in the past few years, right? It's up several hundred percent, uh, despite the lack of actual bottom line earnings, uh, as you well know. Uh, but but nonetheless, volume has grown dr- dramatically, and and they they report forty percent growth practically every quarter, uh, and and obviously they more and more they're getting getting traction, selling larger items on online. Uh, is, that, is, is that an area that you can compete in with Ethan L? Yeah, absolutely. Because see, what, what have they done? They've taken the business from department stores, chain stores. I mean, this business was, somebody was doing it before. Right. We were not doing that, most of that business. Mm-hmm. So that business was being done by large chains. Uh, a lot of those are in trouble because mm-hmm. of the fact that today, look at even Amazon. If you're just selling a commodity and an item and you can buy it online, why would you go to a store today? People don't. Right. Unless you have a differentiated product and a great service, hard to compete. So in their case, uh, I think that what we have been impacted, obviously there is some impact, but it's competition is competition, but we, what has happened is, to a great degree, 
that product line that all things that they're selling was sold by others. Mm-hmm. Now, they're selling it much cheaper because they're not making any profits. Right. And so it is competition. Certainly we take it seriously, but it is a different kind of a competition. Interestingly, the competition at the level of products and the quality we have that's declined tremendously. Okay, recently, HSG, they've owned some of the great brands in this country, uh, from Drexel to Thomasville to uh, Brohiller and Lane and others. Sure, they're, they're bankrupt. And, yeah, yeah, they're out of business. This right. this was our main com- competitor. So, in, interestingly, at a better level of quality, we have less competition than we had 20 years back. At the mass level, there is competition, but that competition was always there when they used to go to chains and stores and buy it. So you feel that that's not your customer? The customer that's going to Wayfair is not the Ethan Allen customer? No, no, I don't say that. I think okay. today, t- another change has taken place is that all of us are able to, are in, are, we are today buying products from different companies much more than we ever did. Mm-hmm. There used to be a time if you were an Ethan Allen customer, you would say buying anything lower was not, that's not the case. Today people are mixing. Right. People are going to Neiman, Mar- uh, to Neiman Marcus and going to Target. So yes, the customers' tastes and change, in my view, have changed where they are much more eclectic in the way they buy. Mm-hmm. Yes, so it is competition, but that competition was always there. Okay. A little bit more today because okay. not of them, but because of the change in people's attitudes of what they are going to buy. Right. You're much more today compatible in buying and mixing than you were 10 years back. Okay. Okay. Several years ago, you were successful in fighting off uh, an, an, an aggressive investor who had accumulated a, a portion of the stock and, and wanted to make some, some changes and was ultimately unsuccessful in getting seats on the, on the board. I think this was 2015, as, yeah. as you know. The stock is back down at sort of multi-year lows. The annual meeting is coming up in just a few weeks. Are you feeling pressure uh, about the stock price? Are you feeling pressure about sort of your own position and, and where you are with the company? How do you feel? Well, certainly, you know, obviously our stock price is, is, is lower, does not reflect what our positioning is, where we are. Uh, we've invested a great deal in a number of investments which did affect our earnings. Um, no, we, I don't feel... Um, I mean, you know, I'm not, uh, there's, al- there's always pressure, we can always do better, but I don't feel the pressure that somehow that uh, uh, we've got to do something that is crazy. Even at the time when there was this attempt, I told them it's a free country. <laughs> if you folks want to buy it, right. go ahead. Right. That's what I told them. Yeah. But then, no, but they didn't. In the end, they were unsuccessful. Right. Right. And you own a fair portion of the of the stock yourself still. I do, yeah. I'm the largest individual stockholder, yeah. Yes. And and would you... I know that one of the things that's that's on the agenda, right, is the poison pill discussion, right? I mean, are you... Are we, you we don't have a poison pill. You don't have a poison pill and you don't plan to put that in place to... Well, to you can never say what you'll do in the future, but, right. you know, the fact I've always said, as I told them, it's a free country. If somebody wants... To, if the stockholders decide that they want to uh, have somebody take over the company, it's, you know, it's their right. Right. What do you want? What do you ultimately want to have happen for Ethan Allen and, and, and ultimately for you? You've been running this company for, for quite some time, as you point out. Well, I want the company to be successful. I want the people to do 
the, the people who are associated with me for a long, long time, they're very dedicated. I want to make sure that, that they, they, do, they do well. But I want to make sure that the company is progressive, the company does things that are right in terms of growing the business. Mm -hmm. End of the day, obviously, we have to grow the business. We have been confronted with all the things we talked about, lots of challenges. Uh, I talked of deflation. We have, had to, we have to grow 7 8% a year just to stay even. Right. Now, not easy. No. Now, those companies who have grown a lot, they've yes. made no money. Right. We, may, we make good money. We have no debt. We have the highest dividend rate in our industry. I was going to say, you pay practically a 4% dividend That's right, right now. So we do all yeah. those things. So if you're a, sto a long-term stockholder, you should be happy. Now, our stock price should, should do better, and I, and, right. and I think it'll go up. You know, as we improve our sales and earnings. Yes. So and we have that opportunity. Do you do you feel that Wall Street doesn't appreciate all that you're doing? Is that is that sort of your perception? Because I mean, it's it, it's had a rough time when when other stocks have been have been doing well in the in the sector. I mean, some of them, not necessarily right. all. In fact, in some of many many of the many some of the stocks are down because Wall Street has become more and more a trading. They're basically looking at the top line to a great degree, not if you're making any money. Right. They don't care. I mean, it's silly. End of the day, you've got to make money. Right. You've got to have give, give, give dividends. You've got to be strong. They don't care about it, but I do care. Mm. So it's not a big thing. We, I don't pay much attention to it, even though I'm one of the largest stockholders. Even the though price, you, yes, even though you're the largest goes, individual shareholder. Yeah, but you it'll go up. If I'm not there for a short term, I right. think long term, right. it should do well. Now, you have a lot of titles and you wear a lot of hats at this company. Do you have a successor in, in place or in mind? Do you think about the day that you would turn control over to someone else in your organization? We always, we always think about the fact of, uh, of uh, as, uh, what did I say? Our first thing is talent and leadership. Yes. So yeah, we have a lot of talented people. We have a very, we are a, we are a company that's not, cannot be run by one person. Well, certainly I'm, I'm, this, uh, I'm, the, I'm leading it. Yes. But we got lots of talented people, and we're, it's a very complicated business. We run manufacturing, we run retail, we run marketing, we develop the, you know, we do a lot of things. We just, we just don't have three people who go out some overseas and buy the products and sell them. Right. So we have a lot of talent, and certainly mm -hmm. we always are thinking about succession at every level. Right. But you don't have any immediate plans to, to change your role? Not yet. Not yet. I'm involved with a lot of other non you know, I'm involved with a number of humanitarian causes, many of them. Yes. Because I believe that's the right thing to do, and that's one of the, and uh, that gives me a balance also in running Ethan Allen. And I'm, yeah. in fact, I'm right now um, involved with a task force that's just been um, mandated by Congress. Mm -hmm. And this is the next 9 11 commission. It is also. Um, co-chaired by Gov Governor Keene of New Jersey, and oh, okay. Representative Hamilton, and just established this year. And this commission is to look at what they say fragile states and what could be done to help the fragile states, which is unfortunately most of Africa, most of the Middle East. And this uh, commission includes people bipartisan, right. from the former national security advisors to former secretaries of states and 15 members, and I'm one of them. And interestingly, when I've gone to the main meetings, I've talked to the five things that we discuss every week, and I said to them, 
to all these very, very knowledgeable and distinguished people that, as far as I'm concerned, those fragile states should think about the five things we do. Right. First one is leadership yes. and governance. If you don't right. have good leaders who also believe in governance, nothing's going to happen. If they're corrupt, how are they going to help their people? So I'm involved. So this is a new assignment this year that I've been working on with okay. this commission. Yeah. Okay. So good. So good for you. So this is occupying some of your some of your time and your and your thought as well. It's Always to the rest of the world. It's not now. I mean, I've been. I've Always. Been, I've chaired an organization called Refugees International. I've been on the. I'm on the advisory. I'm on the board of the International Rescue Committee, which is the largest organization relating to people who have been displaced. I'm on the advisory board of the New York Stock Exchange, so I do both sides. Mm. But I'm involved in all these things because I, we are involved with one business. If on the other hand, I was all I was thinking of going and buying other companies and then trying to take care of the problems of those companies, I would have no time. That's not what we do. We have right. one enterprise and I want to do it right. Right. So what's next for Ethan Allen? What's the next thing that you're going to be telling us about with Ethan Allen? That we have grown. That you're growing. That we are growing. That we have, we continue to have strong talent. Mm-hmm. All the things I talked about. Yes. I think all the things we have done, really, have positioned us for growth. So you, what you're saying is that the changes that you've made are are about to start paying off and and showing dividends, if you will. Absolutely. And, and that we're going to see that in the in the coming quarters. That's not that. I mean, I, with all the things that we have done, we are we are poised to grow. Okay. In a in a tough environment. In a very tough environment. Yep. Okay. So you believe that Ethan Allen can can still be relevant in today's market, and that we're going to see that in the coming quarters. Absolutely. We are more relevant today than we have been, and we are more relevant than a lot of folks in our industry. Okay. Well, that's a strong message. And I think that's a good place to wrap up. So thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Wonderful. Well, good, good to be here and good to talk to you. A pleasure. My guest has been Farooq Kathwari, the chairman and CEO of Ethan Allen. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.